Well, we're hoping to tackle this evening part of Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and uh, just continuing to uh, learn again some of those fundamental principles uh, about God and His working and, and His nature and something about us and our responsibility uh, before God. So quite a long reading tonight. Uh, so let me pray and, and then we're going to read the two stories. It's two narratives of two different incidents that we're going to be discussing and just seeing what we can learn from that. So Father, we do pray that our study tonight would be of some value to each one of us. Coming, we know, as those who must learn from you, Lord, you inform our ignorance. And so looking to you as God as the one who is all-sufficient, and Lord, ourselves as just recipients of your grace. Those of us who are believers, uh, glad, glad to be part of your family, uh, part of what you're doing in the unfolding of your redemptive purposes. So bless our time tonight, Lord, we ask, and may it be a useful time in learning and even growing in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading from verse 10. Uh, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And then we move on to chapter 13, uh, another incident that occurs and recorded for our benefit. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. There Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make for your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, two narratives, but we want to be able to understand them. We want to interpret them. And as in all of our study of the Bible, we want to apply them. What is it that God is saying to us about himself, uh, about us, and just about the world that we are living in? Well, every single day, just to introduce the study, it's a matter of a fact that you are making decisions, uh, making all sorts of these decisions. Some of them perhaps are smaller decisions, perhaps deciding what time you're going to get out of bed, what you're going to eat, where you're going to buy your groceries, perhaps even what car you're going to buy. So you are making decisions all the time. Other decisions are larger. And you think in terms of uh, younger people deciding what career they will follow, uh, which person they will marry, uh, which city they will live in. And, And so there are these smaller decisions, there are these bigger decisions that we make. Now, just think of the complexity of the decision-making that is taking place every moment, every minute uh, of this earth. And and multiplying that through the uh, seconds in a minute and the the minutes in an hour and the hours in a day and and the days in a week and and, and so on and so on and so on. So about, what would we say, between 7 and 8 billion people in the world at the moment making decisions, uh, determining certain courses of action. And in all of this, uh, can you imagine uh, the difficulty that there is, the difficulty that arises when you put this all together and, and you consider that God has a plan for the world? So there is somebody in high authority making decisions in countries distant from us and we're distant from each other and they're influential wealthy people and uh, supposedly all sorts of conspiracies that people have. So decisions and decisions and decisions and God has a plan, an unfolding plan that he has uh, determined even before the foundation of the earth. Now the question and the difficulty is, And the question that I want us to answer today is, do people, many people, making decisions, can those decisions divert or even abort the plans of God? Are we, through our decisions as people, 
unable to stand in the way of the very definite purposes of God. And let's not forget the purpose of God, the promise back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where there was to be, there is to be the bruising, uh, the serpent would bruise the hill. Uh, in fact, let me rephrase that, uh, the, the offspring of the serpent to bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman and the, the offspring of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent. And, and the unfolding, we know that unfolding to the climax of history with the coming of Jesus and the, the horror of crucifixion and yet the delight of the resurrection and ascension into heaven. So we put the question positively. Is God... Now think about this, it's important. Is God and his kingdom plans bigger and stronger than the good and the bad decisions and even the mistakes that we people make? Well, I want us to consider these two different events in the life of Abraham. In the first instance, and I'm going to have an outline here. Uh, in the first instance, we see Abraham, like so many of us at times, he takes matters into his own hands. Have you done that? I certainly have done that. Uh, sadly, uh, I'm ashamed of it in some instances. You find yourself in a situation, a scary, a fearful situation, a vulnerable situation. You're desperate and you decide to make a plan. Even if that plan goes against what you know to be right, in accordance with that which is pleasing to God. May have been a time of financial difficulty, where you're saving your skin, you're saving yourself. Maybe a time where perhaps you're going through relational difficulty in terms of the marriage, a husband with a wife or a wife with a husband, making decisions of separation or possible even divorce. It could be decisions to be slanderous towards others or even deliberately to be vindictive or uh, hurtful, uh, malicious towards the church or people in the church. Well, in this instance, we find that Abram was deceitful. This is where he takes matters into his own hands. He lied in keeping the truth from the authorities and he did so to save his life. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, and so we read in chapter 12, verse 10, that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Nothing wrong with that decision to go down to Egypt, uh, find food, uh, seeking to survive. I don't think that we can criticize him for that particular decision. One could even argue that God had providentially provided for Abram, since Egypt was usually the last place to suffer, uh, according to uh, well, whether there would be a drought or some kind of famine in that part of the world. But what we do find alarming is to hear that Abram, now remember that he's the man of faith. We've come from chapter 12. He's now asking his wife to lie to Pharaoh, to the authorities, about the nature of their relationship. And just listen to verse 11 of chapter 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful, a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they shall kill me. They'll let you live. 
Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you that my life may be spared for your sake. You see what he's doing over here? He's, he's being deceitful just to save his own skin. And so in the short term, we see that this particular deceptive act, this shady act of Abraham seeks to work. And uh, it ends up being the means of him becoming even wealthier. We read in verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. That's Pharaoh. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, male female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, again, I want to remind you that this was the man of faith. This was the man who obeyed God, who left his home and moved to the country that God was promising. He had displayed unquestioning obedience, going to a place that God would show him. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 1. But now he's moved from a place of faith to fear. He fell victim to the old lie that telling a half-truth is okay. As long as you're not caught out. Sarai was in truth. We read later in Genesis chapter 20 verse 12, his half-sister. And so in his thinking, a half-truth justifies his actions as not being a serious offense to God. The bottom line, though, is that his motivation and his intention is to deceive. He does so even at the expense of his wife's dignity and purity. Note that she then is taken into the court or into the household of Pharaoh. And so he uses one half of the truth and and to conceal the other, and, and, and therefore that surely also is tantamount to lying, it's deception. He makes a calculated uh, decision. As her brother, he would be tre- he would surely be treating her with respect and honor. And and as her husband, uh, he feared that he would die. And, and and God was not pleased. We we see that God was not pleased with what had taken place. And so God intervened and took action. His action affects the physical well-being of Pharaoh and those in his household. Chapter 12, verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. As a result of this intervention, Pharaoh now comes and confronts Abram about the lie and he sends them on their way, ending up where they had earlier been in Canaan. Uh, We'll see that in Chapter 13, verse 3, but verse 18 of 12. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, let's just consider the outcome of this particular instance. We do see here confirmation that God's purposes stand regardless, regardless of people's bad decisions, regardless of me, you, people like you and me, sometimes stupidly taking things into our own hands. God returned Abram to that place where he had been. And we know as we read on in the book of Genesis that God's Uh, unfolding purposes continue to unfold. And uh, I'm going to say something more about that in a little while. 
But I want us to look at the second situation. We, we see now uh, an instance where Abraham, like so many of us at times, trusting God in spite of being at a disadvantage. Now, uh, in our house, uh, I remember many times when it comes to sharing a particular chocolate or piece of biltong, six of us, there were six of us, uh, four children in the household, and uh, Carol and, and I, and we had a rule, we had a very rule, uh, important rule that we practice consistently. The one who does not cut gets to choose. So when you're a big family, you share things. So you have a chocolate and somebody's got to cut it into six pieces. You have some biltong and you've got to have to share that amongst six people. So our reason, our re- or our ruling was that, well, if you cut the chocolate, you don't get to choose. And that's because I understand human depravity. And so the reason is because if the cutter gets to choose, guess what happens? He or she will cut one piece bigger than the rest and take it for him or herself. And I want to tell you many times I watched our children so carefully making sure that each piece was exactly the same so that they didn't lose out because they would be the last to get. That's normal. That's the way we people are. Uh, We want to look after ourselves. We want to have the advantage. We want to have the benefit. We want the best for ourselves. That's normal. That's human depravity. However, in this passage, something very different happens between Abraham and Lot. Verse 2 of chapter 13. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold, and Lot who went with Abraham also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abram makes a decision and uh, he wants to solve this growing problem, this tension, this conflict that is emerging between uh, the workers of these two different families. And so in verse 8, Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself out from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, what would you do? I know what most of us would do. We would take the land which looked the most fertile, the most lush, the most promising. That's what Lot did. He looked to see which land was better Verse 10, well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Man, he was going to choose the best. Chose the land. It would give him the advantage. Even though it was near Sodom, uh, we read in verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Whereas Abraham in this instance is willing to entrust himself and his situation to God. Even though it may appear that he... Will be have or will have the disadvantage. He does so now. We see him acting as a man of faith. God had made promises. Surely now he's remembering the promises of God. 
God had given his word to Abraham that he would bless him and, and, and succeeding generations that God would provide for him. And so he must have reasoned. He must have reasoned, well, if God had promised and given his word, then surely he had the power to bring about all that he intended. So in this instance, Abraham believes God, even in what may appear to be an immediate situation of being second, second place, uh, or not having the best or being at a disadvantage. Having trusted God, we notice in the unfolding course of events that he is not the loser. He's not in a position of disadvantage. The favor of God continues to rest on his servant. And God confirms and now elaborates on his promises and all the intentions for Abram and his offspring. Verse 14 of chapter 13. And so the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make for your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Um, My point God's plans for Abram and the nations stand. God will do it. So Abram moved his tent, came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, where, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, now we're going to spend some time trying to analyze and understand some theology, what I believe to be some good, sound, fundamental theology. And remember, and I say this repeatedly from these opening chapters of Genesis, and I am going to, in fact, conclude uh, with this uh, chapter 13 for the moment anyway. Next week, we'll move on to something else. But there are definitely, definitely uh, patterns that ought to inform our worldview and our understanding of God in the operation of God and even of ourselves. And so what do we glean? What do we learn from this particular passage or these two incidents? Uh, One, a negative incident where uh, Abram takes matters into his own hands and second instance where he trusts God. So in the one instance we have bad decisions being taken and uh, in the second instance we have good decisions being taken. Well, the first lesson I want us to think about is the lesson about God. Dear folk, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you, I want to implore you to grow in your understanding of God. That understanding can only grow as you allow or you are willing to learn from the scriptures what God reveals about himself. Now, there are mysteries. Yes, there are many mysteries. And that simply being because God is infinite, God is eternal, and you and, and I are finite, and we are limited, and we, uh, we, we simply cannot understand everything there is to know about God. But we can understand that which he reveals about himself, the way he operates, the way he acts, the names that he reveals himself with. And so today, again, we can learn, we can learn something about God. Number one, and I'll just put this in simple terminology. God is very strong and supreme. God is most strong, if that grammar is even correct. His power and greatness is such 
that even our worst decisions, get that, even our worst decisions, our mistakes do not abort, do not stand in the way of what God intends to do. Let me give you some examples. And we're seeing it unfolding in these early pages of Genesis and there many, many uh, decades and centuries uh, to follow. He planned for his son to come and save many from their sin. Seated the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There will be victory over the kingdom of darkness, over the over Satan, over sin, and over death. Done. We're able to look back to Calvary. We're able to look back to the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. Born to Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, living a perfect life. And, and then uh, taken to the cross where the authorities and where the, the, the offspring of the serpent or the seed of the serpent thinking victory was imminent. No. God's purpose stood. God's purpose stands. God's purpose will stand. Let me give you another example. And for those of you who uh, want to take evangelism and mission seriously, which we ought to do, <laughs> we, we're on the winning side. And, and the reason is because he plans and has given us a glimpse in the book of Revelation through John and the visions that he gave on the Isle of Patmos to have people from every tribe, language and nation worship before his throne. And that's unfolding. Have you considered? Don't, don't only, only live in the slither of history that we now encounter. Look what God has done from the very beginning after his ascension, giving uh, the mandate to those handful of disciples. All authority on earth has been given to me. Make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey. What's happened? All over the world, they're believers. Down through the centuries, the church has been growing and God has been adding uh, to this company of people from every nation, tribe and land. And he's going to finish the task. Doesn't matter what anybody does. Good decisions, bad decisions. God's purpose in redemption will stand. In fact, he plans to have, according to Philippians 2, that time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is strong, very strong, incomparably strong. It will happen. We are creatures, and now I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul, and this is a mystery. It's a mystery, but, but I think we could all these two realities in tension. We are creatures with the will of our own. We make things happen. This is what R.C. Sproul says. Uh, yet, the causal power we exert is secondary. God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. He works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. Now that's something you've got to think about. That's the greatness of God. Even your bad decisions. And there's the clearest example of this 
Concurrence is what theologians call it. You making decisions freely. And yet God's purpose is standing and God using those decisions to accomplish his purposes, even when those decisions are evil, wrong, bad. Don't forget, don't forget the story of Joseph and his brothers. They are truly responsible and guilty for the decisions that they took to be malicious and vindictive and unkind and horrible toward their little brother, Joseph, selling them off. All the ordeal that he went through, working as a slave, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison. And eventually, this beautiful, beautiful doctrine of the providence of God, working even through their sin, as we read in Genesis chapter 50, Verse 20, as for you, this is Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that that happened, by the way, with the cross as well. Evil men put Jesus to death on a cross. But all along it was the will of God, God working even through their evil decision-making. Now I want to give you... What I learned uh, only as a pastor, and not even at the beginning of my ministry, as I have been growing in my own understanding of doctrine and of God, I learned something about the will of God. You need to understand the will of God in three different ways. And, and before I give you those three different ways, I want to again remind you, don't be naive Don't be, could I even say, foolish to think that a particular word always means exactly the same thing. The will of God. Does it always refer to exactly the same thing? Let me give you another example. Let's take, for example, the, or take as an example, just the simple word world. World. Your world is in Pretoria. Your world is in this world as the earth, as uh, a planet, you could say. See what I mean? A word always finds its final meaning in a given context. And so we have this word will. And we add to that God's will. I want to suggest to you that there are three different ways in which we need to understand God's will. The first is, and perhaps this is a new word uh, for you, is the decorative will of God. God determining, God decreeing certain reality, certain events, certain history, certain actions, even before the beginning of time. Theologians speak of the decree of creation. God decreed that there ought to be the creation of the world and all that exists. There is the decree of redemption. We've been speaking a lot about that today, right at the beginning. We see this being exposed to Adam and Eve. 
Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, and I'm going to repeat this again and again. Seed of the serpent will crush the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman will crush the head, the seed of the serpent. There's the redemption plan unfolding. I've spent a week on just the successive generations, people being born and people dying. Why? The guarantee of successive generations, even through the flood of Noah, God preserving a remnant so that his promises would stand, so that the unfolding of his redemption decree takes place, ultimately in the coming of Jesus, and then finally, at the consummation of time when everybody, or people from every nation, tribe, and language will worship at his throne. That is going to happen, and it doesn't matter whether Joe Biden or uh, uh, the liberal presidents of this world, the liar that took oaths with the Bible just a few weeks ago from England, it doesn't matter what they say or what they do, God's will, his decorative will, will unfold. So that's the, the highest level. It's, it's the governing level, if you like, of God's will. But there's, a, there, there's another category. It's what I would call the will of command. All sorts of commands in the Bible. Many commands uh, to people, like we could just use, for example, the Ten Commandments. You, as a human being, can choose. You can decide. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? When Abram went into Egypt, he could have decided to uh, be truthful. He decided to lie. It's the will of command. But what you need to know about the will of command or the disobeying of the will of command, it never frustrates the decorative will of God. The decorative will of God always unfolds and even through the bad uh, and, and disobedient decisions of people, it will still unfold. Then there's another level of God's will that sometimes people misquote and misunderstand. It's the will of desire. Now, the will of desire of God is not the same as the decorative will. God makes promises. Those promises will unfold because God is faithful. God keeps his word. God is holy. God is true. God is powerful. He can do that. But there is something about God in the very nature of God that tells us also that there is a certain will of desire. And let me give you the often misquoted verse regarding the will of desire. From 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And there's an Old Testament counterpart to that. I just read it this morning and I added to my notes, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, where God tells the prophet Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That tells you something of the nature of God. But that does not bypass the holiness of God. It does not bypass the reality that there will be judgment and that God will separate out the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, the tares from the wheat. And there will be those who will be condemned. They will face the second death. Not everybody will be saved. 
Well, here's a lesson in theology. Think about it. Discuss it. Challenge me if you think I'm wrong. In fact, have a discussion with me on this matter. It, it, it liberated my thinking when I understood that these, these different levels, if you like, different uh, perspectives of the will of God. His decorative will, and I forgot to put it on the screen, his decorative will, God's will of command, and God's will of desire. Well, God was kind to self-serving uh, now. In fact, I've just missed the point. Yeah, God is generous and kind. And I want to just say that about God as well. Uh, the grace of God is evident in this passage. Uh, God was kind to, to self-serving, deceitful, undeserving Abram. And he was kind to him in both instances. Did you notice that? When he made a bad decision, God was kind to him. When he made a good decision, allowing his cousin to go off in the other direction, or his nephew, not his cousin, it's his nephew Lot, to have the upper hand, God was kind to Abraham. The very nature of God, he, he, he's disposed to be kind. I don't know if, if that's a correct way of saying it, but we see this compassion of God coming through constantly toward those who are his own. Well, those lessons about God today, but what about for us? I do think there's a warning here. Uh, consequences of sinful decisions. Simply because God can take a bad decision and still accomplish his will doesn't mean that we just frivolously and irresponsibly go ahead and just do as we please. In this instance, Pharaoh and his household suffered as a, as a result of Abram's bad decision. Isn't that true? Uriah, I think, let's go to another example. Uriah suffered as a result of David's uncontrolled lust. Many other people suffer. We see families broken. We see children hurt, children affected. These are all realities that happen as a result of uh, disobedience and bad decisions to God. You see, folk, we need to understand that our bad decisions will never abort God's kingdom plans or his decorative purposes, but they may cause unnecessary hurt in the lives of people. So you can choose to be disobedient. Others will be hurt and consequences will result. God will still build his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. You see, we can choose to satisfy our flesh, whether it's in greed or lust or pride or anger, but others may suffer the consequence of those bad decisions. But God's kingdom will nevertheless continue to be established. So, and that was the first instance. We warned about the consequences of sinful decisions. And then secondly, should we all not be challenged to trust God as Abram did in the second instance? God is faithful. God has promised. Great is thy faithfulness. This is a song we sing. And so we need to be challenged to do the right thing, even when the wrong thing appears to be pragmatically attractive. And then a word to an, anybody who is an unbeliever. I'm not sure if there are any unbelievers who listen to this. A life independent of God has no hope. There's no hope for the future. And I would urge you to do the right thing. And even what we've seen in this passage today, just a reminder to us of the grace and compassion of God. And also that decorative purpose of God 
unfolding his redemption plan in Jesus, providing for the forgiveness of sin of sinful men and women. And that gift is an offer to all. Will you receive it? Will you repent of your sin? Will you trust in Jesus as your Savior? And so this challenge to trust God, all of us, it follows a revelation that God can be trusted, the greatness and grace of God. And so I do trust that the study today has been of some benefit and help to you, giving you confidence, even in a world where people are making such terribly bad decisions, even in our country. But we believers can rest. God's purposes will continue to unfold. So God bless you and be with you. And Lord, I pray to that and give us faith, uh, understanding that faith comes from hearing and hearing from your word. Pray, Lord, that each of us would walk circumspectly, understanding the greatness of your redemption purposes, submitting to your will, and Lord, giving us the courage to trust you and depend on you in all matters of faith and life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of questions there, and uh, put them quite simply today so that uh, some discussion can take place, and, and particularly over those different aspects of the will of God. So God bless you, and uh, trust that you have a good week further.